Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and investment advisor with over 19 years' experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance. I'm also a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider and have been helping corporations and individuals for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday, like today, from 9 to 10 a.m. Yeah, you can also go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link in the top right-hand corner that you can stream us. Uh, obviously, you can check us out on the dial at 12.30 a.m., but uh, we also make it convenient. That's We're all about convenience, right? Absolutely. You also can listen to us on your smartphone. You know, you can download the TuneIn radio app. That's the way I like to listen to uh, the station. And, you know, you can uh, download that app. You also can get the pro version of that, and you can set it up to record it every Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. So you can listen to us any time you want to. Yeah, any time you know, during the week. Middle of the night. You can just wake up, can't sleep. You yeah. know, you can. During the halftime of the World Cup games. Exactly. Yeah. That would have been a good time. Or during yeah. the first hole. Yeah. After those first two scores by. Uh, you could just listen to us during the first half and the second half. You didn't miss anything, right? There was no, no. score. No, there was no Talking score. About the U.S. Yeah, uh, I mean, Belgium. all all I saw was like the last thirty minutes. That and was that, it. That's all you needed because yeah. once I saw two scores by uh, by uh, Belgium, I've already forgotten yeah, Belgium. Belgium. Yeah, shows <laughs> how much of a soccer fan I yeah. am. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am a soccer fan. I, I played it growing up. Matthews played it, and um, it's obviously a lot slower than football and so forth. But uh, it's just amazing the skill and some of the things those guys it can is. do. The shape they have to be in yeah. to run that much, and they are so fast. Is phenomenal. Yeah. They are very fast. It's hard to put it in perspective because everybody's fast out there. But let's say let's put you out there. Right, they would really be fast. Oh wow, yeah, and even right. faster if I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a different sport, you know. Yeah. I. And I can't relate to all the time it takes to make, like, two scores for the entire game. <laughs> I was telling Kathy, you know, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I enjoy watching golf. Some people think that's like watching paint dry, mm-hmm. right? But, I mean, at least there's a shot. There's something different happening every time, and every shot counts. Yeah. It's like in Anyway, okay, yeah. I won't go into that. You know, Gordon's <laughs> over here laughing. Yeah, Gordon, our new advisor, is here with us as well. And uh, Gordon's a baseball Yeah, fanatic, you're a baseball right? guy, right? I am, but I, I enjoy multiple sports. I yeah. enjoy every yeah. sport, to I, be honest with you. I'm just a sports yeah. fan, period. Yeah. So. I, do, I am, too. I am, too. But it was interesting. You know, I think, I don't know if that's as far as the Americans have ever gotten in the World Cup, but it was pretty far. I mean, they were close yeah. to the quarterfinals. They got right? past the, you know, the, the first bracket, which no one expected them to. So it yeah. was a successful trip. I mean, yeah. it was. and. But still, I, I saw a ranking in the USA as 11th, ranked 11th out of all the countries. So they're not even in the top 10. <clears throat> hey, in four years, but, though, we're getting better. I think in yeah, four years, the next in the right World direction. Cup, we'll be, we'll be getting closer. It's kind of like South Carolina being ranked fourth last year. And this next year, we'll be in the top one or two. So we're no, oh, yeah, in the right yeah. Maybe you'll Maybe you'll beat Clemson. Yeah. Again? <laughs> right. 
we won't go there. I'm not making any predictions. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, um, we got an exciting show lined up for the day. Um, we're going to talk about, first of all, the stock market. Stock market is at all-time highs again. Yeah. You know, it kind of teeters, teeters along, but it's uh, it's kind of back at that level. And we, we keep getting questions, why invest now? And so we're going to talk about that. Where is the market? What are the prices relative to history? What are some reasons you might want to invest now, or, or should you invest at all? Mm-hmm. So we'll go through that. Yeah, it's a good good topic, and we're going to follow that up with a, an article uh, talking about the national debt. Steve, um, you know, two years ago, the, the discussion of the national debt was kind of at the forefront. A lot of um, political wrangling over that, and it's kind of been pushed to the side again. And unfortunately, the, the national debt continues to increase. And um, <clears throat> you know, at some point, it's gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to deal with it. Um, it's just continuing to go up, and uh, we've got some thoughts and, and how to kind of approach that that particular topic. And then we're going to end up with a um, an article and a topic on college uh, funding. And um, so, if you have college age students, which we both do, um, we've used five twenty nine plans, put money in there, and so yep. now what do you do? How do you get it out? And there's some things that you want to watch out for. You can get into some some tax issues and tax trouble if you don't follow some some specific regulations. So we'll dive into that topic as well. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm I'm very good at getting money out of five twenty nine. Yes, plans. Yeah, I bet you are. <laughs> Every single year, unfortunately, I have to get a lot out. Yep, yep. So uh, three kids in college. So yeah, it's it sure is. But fortunately, Josh is winding it down in grad school. Yep. So I think. We're down to two now. Good. It's exciting. It's exciting. (laughs) All right. That leads us up, though, to our financial fact of the week. Yeah, this source is from the National Bureau of Economic Research. And um, a stat, and this is not surprising, but 24% of Americans borrowed money from a friend or family member during the 18th month recession that began on 12-31-2007. So they're talking about 2008-2009 time period. And, um, you know, a fourth of Americans, that's a lot. And I, can, I, I was one of those people yeah. I mean, that, that was on the giving end. Giving end, right, right, right. And, you know, as we as we see and we talk with, with our clients and do a lot of counseling for people, when you deal with money and family or friends, it can be really sticky. Um, it, it can. can re, uh, relationships are ruined. I had a client that reached out to me this last week, and she was wanting to know if she should um, help her grandson out with the purchase of a car. And so we kind of talked through the the ins and outs of it. And um, right. I just basically said, you know, if you loan this money to your grandson, you almost have to be willing to walk away from the you, money, you not do. to ruin the relationship. That's it. You got to be prepared to make it a gift. Right. Because, right. you know, is it worth ruining your relationship over if the loan goes bad, which family loans usually do go bad, yeah. quite frankly. There's a reason banks aren't loaning. There is money. a reason. You know, <laughs> I mean, their business. credit is worse than bad if they're going to family members, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. they can't get it from a credit card. Nobody would go ask their family if they could get it from a credit card or, a or bank get or it from somewhere. a bank. So, you know, it's a high-risk loan, and it might be better just to start off calling it a gift mm-hmm. rather than having it go bad and go through those emotions. You know, my recommendation is if you can afford to make it a gift, just make it a gift and take the whole stigma of the loan thing and you owe me forever and, you know, them feeling indebted to you and you feeling them feeling guilty and you feeling, you know, like they, you know, should make good on it for the rest of their life. I mean, just take all that off the table yeah. and just make it a gift if you can. That, that's really, to me, that's the only situation you really should be in. If you can't afford to make a gift, you shouldn't do it. That's right. Because it, it will it will probably turn into that. Yeah, absolutely. Good thought. So that's a great financial fact of the week, though. All right. Very good. 
And that leads up to our first topic of the day, and that is the stock market is at all-time highs. Why invest now? Yeah, we get that question we pretty do. much we do. weekly. We do. I mean, because the market is at all-time highs, and, you know, John, I mean, um, and when you talk about where the market is at today, I mean, people are worried about another correction or bear market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as they should be, I mean, because corrections do come around pretty frequently, as we'll discuss here in a minute. But, yeah, I mean, markets are still at all-time highs. We, we know what happened when that was the case in 2007. That's still fresh on our memories. That was only seven years ago. And, you know, there's no shortage of prognosticators who say that it's way overvalued, uh, even though it, it just reached those 2007 levels again just last year. So it really hasn't been an all-time highs that long when you look at other bear market, bull markets where the market, you know, takes off and is, runs at all-time highs mm-hmm. for five years sometimes. Um, but then there are those people who think that it's it's going to correct big time just because it's summer again or, you know, the uncertainty that's in the world. There's always something that's triggering those feelings. And everyone remembers those big drops in 2008, and no one wants to go through that feeling again or have to wait five years for a full recovery like some people had to do. So, But, you know, if you look at history, it shows us that there are some good reasons to stay with equities and not try to time that kind of correction or the next recovery um, all of this is not to say that, that we won't have a correction or another bear market anytime soon because we we know those are unpredictable, right? I mean, nobody has a crystal ball. Past performance doesn't mean anything about the future. That's right. So, you know, you, you can't try to time it. Yeah, and we're certainly not trying to predict anything here. But, you know, one of the things that we do, Steve, is look at history, and, and we've talked about this before. And on average, uh, the stock market corrects or is down 10%. Uh, about 1.1 times per year. And that's looking back, you know, over 100 years worth of data. And a bear market, which is down 20%, um, happens about once every three and a half years. So, you know, these bear markets and, and, and corrections, um, they're pretty normal. Um, they don't feel normal as you're going through them, but but they are. And they typically uh, recover fairly quickly, about 105 days on average for the S&P 500. That's a little bit over three months for the typical recovery from a 10% drop. So trying to time these things, um, we see the Dalbar study we've talked about, <clears throat> that's not a good strategy. That's right. That's right. And even though the market's at new highs, you know, the good news is market valuations are still relatively cheap when you look at certain valuations. You know, it depends on and how you compare it. But, for instance, the S&P 500's forward P.E. ratio, that's looking forward, you know, this year's earnings, Projected divided by the, I mean, the current price divided by this year's earnings that are projected for 2014 is around 15.7. And that's still cheap compared to the long term average of about 18. So, you know, by that measure, the market looks pretty attractive. Then there's the, the price to book ratio, which is about 2.1 um, compared to some points in history when it was really high, like back in 2000. It was over nine, John. I mean, it was extraordinarily high mm. back in two thousand. Yeah, before that that bear market kicked in. Yeah, it's um, you know, we're looking at metrics and we see a lot of different metrics. We were talking about this a minute ago, and you know, I mean, the key is is there's going to be corrections that happen. Be properly diversified. And we'll get into some more stats here. I think when we come back from uh, 
from from the break. Yeah, that's exactly right. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. In the house. I'm Steve Margaret, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider, and also have Gordon Leopard here with us, our new advisor in the office. And, uh, you know, we're talking about the market, the stock market. Um, it's at all time highs again. Um, so we're getting those questions again about why should you invest now or should you invest now? Because um, the market mm-hmm. is up there, right? Yeah, it's had and a it, pretty it, phenomenal year and a half, two year run here. It has, and it feels high, and people are wondering, you know, should you wait for some correction or, or for a drop in the market before you, you get in? So, um, you know, we're kind of addressing that question, and we just talked about the fact that there are one – there's a correction every year on average. Typically, yeah. About 1.1, right? And there's a bear market about every three or four years on average. Um, the correction's a 10% drop, and on average, it takes about 105 days to recover from that. Um, when you look back at the history of, this, of the S&P 500, so you can't time those, though. It's very unpredictable, and that's the problem, right, John? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it just the market, it, sometimes it can go several years and not have a correction, and sometimes you might get two or three in a year. Yeah, and the people that try to correct it, a lot of times they won't get back in until years later, and they've missed the run-up. Um, so trying to time the market is is impossible. I mean, no it one really can is. do it. It really is. And, and when you look at the valuations of the market now, surprisingly, it's really not that expensive. Um, even though the market's at new highs, it went a long time before it got back to new highs, right? And earnings continued to increase. Mm-hmm. So now we're at price-to-earnings ratios, forward price-to-earnings ratio for the S&P 500 is about 15.7, which is still less than the long-term average for the S&P 500. Um, and then there's price-to-book ratio, which is 2.1, which is is still less than the long-term average um, and certainly a lot less than where it was back in 2000. Mm-hmm. In some points of history, um, you know, I can remember <clears throat> talking about corrections in bear markets. I can remember when I was first out of college for about a year, we had some stocks that Kathy's grandmother had given us, and I used to track those every day. You know, I'd love to get on and, you know, pull the paper, and back then we didn't have the Internet, John. It was dating myself here. <laughs> but, uh, you did black would, and white TV? Something <laughs> like that. I would get the paper. Yeah, we didn't have an iPhone or even a cell phone, for yeah. that matter. And uh, so I'd write down the, in my little memo pad, you know, the <laughs> prices every day. And uh, I enjoyed doing that and watching it go up. You know, I was just out of college, and it's exciting to see my money growing, our money growing. And uh, But then I was sitting in my office one day, late one afternoon, and uh, one of my coworkers came in and said, Hey, man, did you hear the market crash today? Star market just totally melted down. I said, you got to be kidding me. So went home. Sure enough, it was October 19th, 1987, <laughs> if you remember those dates. Um, the market dropped 22% in one day. Can you imagine that today? What would ha- I mean, 
in one day. It just twenty two percent one day. That yeah, it was a five hundred point drop, and yeah. you know it was just it was. I mean, back then that was twenty two percent because it was only like yeah. eighteen hundred or something. Yeah. Or now I think it was at like twenty seven hundred for the Dow back then. But anyway. It was, I went home and I calculated up the next day, and my portfolio dropped like thirty percent for the month. <laughs> and I was because I used to write it down maybe about once a month yeah. in my portfolio. And I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" But you know, I mean, I kept track of them. It was less than a year before they were back up to where they had been. So after all the drama and the hype of the largest one day drop in U.S. history. It was a really only a blip on the long-term radar screen of returns. I have a, uh, in my office a um, picture of the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average since 1900, and you can barely even pick out 1987. Now, you yeah, can see that, the Great Depression yeah, certainly sure, shows up, and sure. you, there's a lot of jagged you know, ups and downs, but yeah. you're right. It's just a blip It was in just history. a blip. I mean, it was a big hype about the crash back then, you know. And, uh, I mean, in fact, I ran returns for a guy just the, uh, this week that I met with, um, that stayed invested in, in a diversified portfolio the last 13 years. And his returns were over 120% um, despite the 2002 crash that he set through and the 2008 crash that mm-hmm. we went through seven years ago. So, you know, when you start looking long-term, the, the big drops, they kind of fade into the background if you stay diversified and stay invested. Yeah, and obviously we're talking about past returns we're not looking for trying to predict you know past performance doesn't guarantee future results but you're right i mean during difficult times and we look back at the history and uh you know the markets do correct and do have bear markets but historically they've made you know 10 percent over long periods of time and don't you think that's another good reason for uh clients to come in do a review either annually or you know every so often just to take a look over their uh, portfolio that way they kind of know where they are, and you know, it's given given everyone a chance to look at where they want to go. Yeah, you know, what's the present situation? Yeah, I think it's healthy to get a perspective on where you've been. You know, what the long term history has been. Kind of look back and look at the whole landscape rather than just focusing on the the current month or the current year, which mm-hmm. people tend to do. You know, if they're just looking at their statement. Right. So um, that's a great point. Gordon, yep. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, just because, I mean, so the question is, you know, are are new highs really a proxy for selling? Um, You know, because the market's at new highs, should you be selling out of the market? Yeah, and just because the market's at new highs, I mean, does that mean that it's over for more gains? I mean, we've had people been, you know, been saying that for a year now, and they've missed some, some pretty nice ups in the market. Sure have. You know, some people think so. I mean, we get that implied question all the time when we sit down with the client and and they ask, um, you know, should they wait until the market is lower before investing or adding money? And obviously, I mean, no one knows. I mean, no one knows if the market's going to go higher or lower from this point. The key is is having a good plan and being diversified going forward. And, you know, that's, that's it's, right. it's a natural thing to ask those. It no is. It is. It's understandable, you know, and um, you always want to get into perceived low, right? That's everybody's feeling. But, I mean, here's the real question. Does the market have any better chance of going down once it's reached a new high? I mean, it certainly seems like it. I mean, after all, you know, it's it's sort of the definition of a recent high is the market spent a lot of time lower than where it is now. But, you know, it's interesting because some research came out here recently from DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors, um, that debunks that myth rather handily. What it shows is that out of the last 40 years, the markets continued to new highs anywhere from 59 to 72% of the time 
in the one month, three month, six month, and twelve month periods going forward after reaching new highs. So, in other words, what that means is, despite the fact the markets are up, that there is usually a better chance that it'll continue going forward rather than turning lower. Just because it's at new highs doesn't mean that the odds are it's going to start down, um, is what that means. So, um, you know, the odds are on your side if you stick with equities and you don't try to time the next uh, next big drop in the market. Um, but, you know, um, you know, John, I mean, I have a lot of confidence in the U.S. economy. And I, I really think that capitalism does make a difference. And um, the fact that... You know, even if we do slip into some kind of, uh, you know, another recession, you know, even a depression, I think capitalism makes a difference. And and I think unlike Russia, who still hasn't recovered from 20 years of communism um, or 20 years ago, whenever communism ended, because they really haven't embraced, you know, the free capitalistic system. Mm -hmm. um, You know, we emerged from the Great Depression um, and a diversified portfolio would have fully recovered in four and a half years. We say that a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's. And that's been proven to be true. And we emerged from World War II and deficits of 120% of GDP to prosperity in just a few years. Yeah, there's there's two factors that, that I look at, Steve, when we talk about this. Technology is changing the marketplace and businesses. Um, right. You know, that's a phenomenal driver of, of earnings for companies. And the other thing is, is <clears throat> there's like 7 billion people uh, on this world that want to live kind of like we live in the U.S. So, I mean, there are companies that want to provide, you know, clean water and, and medical and iPhones and things to those 6 billion people who don't have it. No. You know? And so that's, I mean, there's, and that's capitalism. I mean, that's, it is. that's the driver of earn, fundamentally of earnings in corporations. And fortunately, we have some great things going for us now in the economy. We have energy production that's, mm-hmm. you know, some at some of the highest levels that it's ever been here in the U.S. And, you know, we have onshoring of, of manufacturing as a result of, of low energy prices here in the U.S. So, you know, I, I think America, the takeaways here, I think America will recover from the debt issues um, that we have. I think we still have the greatest uh, system of government and economy in the world, and, and that will drive opportunities going forward. The market, I, th- I think, is also still reasonably priced relative to history, and profits are the highest for U.S. companies that they ever have been. Um, history shows that in periods like this, they usually are followed by, um, you know, pretty good periods going forward for investors when markets are at these these valuations. So the bottom line is don't bail on the stock market and retirement plan. Stay invested and well-diversified, and, you know, history shows you will probably prosper mm-hmm. going forward for doing that. Yeah. Good, so, good advice from the money doctors here, I think, because right, this is a – this is a topic that comes up a lot now. It really does. It really does. Okay. Well, that leads up here to break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. Or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back with these messages and GM News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve 
Harvard, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is our advisor in our office here joining us today. And we are leading off our second segment here with the question of the week. Yeah, Steve, this question is, um, actually had it from a client meeting that I had this last week. And the question was, is $100,000 for me and my wife for life insurance um, enough to, to cover us? And so, hmm. um, you know, every question like that is, is dependent upon the, the, the situation of the family. That's In right. this case, husband, 40 years old, makes $90,000, has a great income. You know, we usually recommend eight to ten times, and so does Dave Ramsey for that fact. So that would say... Yeah, he needs to get between seven hundred and fifty and 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 nine hundred thousand dollars of coverage. And the way I put it to him is, you know, if if something happened to you as a major breadwinner, a hundred thousand dollars is not going to go very far for your wife. I mean, it, it would really put them in 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 dire straits financially based on their situation. So, you know, a hundred thousand for some people may be enough. In this case, it was not. It really depends on what your income is, your debt level. They have two young kids. What are, um, what are your needs? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, every situation is totally different, and I, I don't even like the rules of thumb, you know, the eight to ten times your salary, because it's so broad brush. I mean, you know, it depends on how big is your 401K, how mm-hmm. much do you have saved, you know, do you have kids, do you have a huge mortgage or not, um, what would your survivor need need to live off of, yeah, that's and what, what resources do they have? So you really have to analyze it, but... But yeah, I mean, a hundred thousand for somebody making ninety thousand income, not likely, you know, because that's going to generate almost no income. And on top, on top of that, it was a whole life policy. So okay, I'm like, there oh you, no, there you go. So yeah, gave, gave him some things to think about, and um, so yeah, but you, something, just, you know, a lot of people are underinsured for their situation, so it's a question to ask. Yeah, and I normally recommend a good term policy on top of whatever whole life you have, but a good term policy to fill in the gap till the kids are, you know, out yeah. of college and. You know, the mortgage is paid off and you're in retirement. So, you know, a good 20 or 30 year term policy can go a long way. And that's pretty cheap in today's world. Yeah, it is. Relatively speaking, it's gotten very competitive. So that's good. Good question of the week. All right. And that leads us up to our next topic here. And that is the troubling national debt. Um, do we really have to talk about this, John? I mean, this is, is not a I'm fun sorry. topic. Debbie Downer. And this here. is like vacation time. We're supposed to be talking about golf vacations yeah. and U.S. advancing you know, to the second round, which they lost, but it was a positive. Yeah, it was. That was good. That was good. But yeah, the debt. I just it's kind of been pushed on the time. side. I don't hear a lot no, in the media. We, we don't hear anything. Today. I mean, we don't. Two years ago, uh, it was obviously in the in the news media daily. And uh, yeah, this comes from from Marketing Pro. It's a service that we um, subscribe to that has some good information, good articles. And um, you know, going back to nineteen or eighteen thirty five, something financially remarkable happened. Get this: the federal government paid off the national debt. They paid off all their debt, everything, not balanced budget. And we're talking about paid off your, yeah. all the credit cards and everything. And, and it hasn't happened since, obviously. You know, through a, a myriad of presidential administrations <laughs> and economic cycles. The national debt has has persisted. I mean, we've had wars, depressions, recessions, and they've all helped to to send the national debt higher. And and while it can shrink in the short term, and it's not going away anytime soon. I mean, currently it stands at seventeen point six trillion dollars, and about twelve point six of that is held by the public. So seventeen point six, and it's increasing right. every single day. Yeah, you know, it, those numbers mean absolutely nothing to most people because mm-hmm. a trillion dollars is inconceivable. Yeah, I mean, what is a trillion? <clears throat> so, yeah, so you have to kind of boil it down and relate it to, to gross domestic product. 
I mean, that's a good way to measure debt for a country. And so, yeah, the big picture is disconcerting. In the fall of 2013, the Congressional Budget Office said the national debt was about 73% of the, the GDP, mm-hmm. which I think is a good way of measuring it. That, that's a high level. They see that declining to about 68% of GDP by 2018. But then it's going to increase back to 71% by 2023. So we're talking nine years out. It's, it's going to start heading up again. You know, this is by their normal estimates, um, you know, based on how things currently are. And as a consequence of rising interest rates and spending for Social Security and health care, they're saying that the debt's going to equal 100% of GDP by 2038. <clears throat> Um, now that's a point where you don't want to reach. That's where you start getting in trouble. A hundred percent of GDP. Yep. These studies have shown that vastly starts affecting your growth of your country and starts really dragging it down. And I think it has been at that level one time back in World War II. But then we had a tremendous growth and and um, obviously the war put a lot of people to work and so forth. So we got out of that, but. You know, it's not a place you want to go. And, and so the question is, is that the national debt should grow over the next decade like it's projected to? What would the impact be? And, you know, based on this article, it's saying it would be felt subtly, um, but it would be notable. The greater the U.S. debt per capita, the greater the default risk for the federal government, meaning that the, the newly issued treasuries uh, would have to have higher yields to appeal to investors to take on that additional risk. So, you know, a bigger percentage of the federal tax revenue would go towards paying the interest on the national debt, which would leave fewer tax dollars for federal services and programs that they currently have. So, you know, as a result, borrowing for economic enhancement projects would certainly become harder. And um, I think this is a key here. Uh, there would be a reduced standard of living for American households as a possible byproduct. And when I look at reduced That's standard right. of living, I see means testing for, you know, a lot of the benefits the government currently gives out. So they're going to have to probably do some things with taxes. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but That's also right. re- reduce your standard of living. I mean, Yeah, the, the kind of the bottom line is it would reduce standards of living, mm-hmm. which we have some of the highest standard of living here in the U.S., of any country on earth and you know that's that's america as we know it and it would change if we let debts continue to spiral out of control um yeah the higher yields would be one of the the direct implications of that uh higher treasury yields um they they lessen the appetite for risk um yields on treasuries start to look pretty good compared to, to equities or corporate securities investors may run to treasuries instead so it's competing for the dollars out there mm-hmm. you know for investments and that hurts the economy indirectly that could encourage more inflation because you have higher treasury yields could prompt yields on corporate securities to rise which would force corporations to hike prices on goods and services you know, i.e., you'd have inflation. And then lastly, mortgages would become more expensive because interest rates are linked to treasury yields and short term rates established by the Federal Reserve um, tend to affect mortgages. So, costlier mortgages mean, you know, homeowners would be buying less homes, right? Mm-hmm. And are uh, be paying more for them, which would reduce the net worth. And, you know, we're back to uh, lower standard of living for yeah, everybody. That's right. That's kind of what it points to. And then, you know, it looks out under the current projections what would happen in 2038 if we did hit 100% of debt to the GDP ratio. And, you know, if America did reach that point where, where debt was equal to the GDP, um, a considerable economic price could be paid. In addition to a loss of confidence on the part of foreign investors, 
you would have a loss of flexibility on the part of, of the federal government. And I was reading somewhere recently that um, at some point this is going to be a, a national security issue. Yeah. Um, just from being able to protect yourself and run your country. Being able to fund and the, actually, the defense. That's right. Actually, I think that would actually um, bring people together. If you start talking about national security and not being able to protect yourself because of these, I think that may be the... Well, that is one of the basic functions of government. Yeah. So that would certainly get everybody's attention if we you know, weren't able to properly you know, deploy forces mm-hmm. where we need to in the world. Um, you know, other nations might lose faith also in our ability to pay our obligations. If that happens, we might find it harder and more expensive to borrow money. You know, more and more federal borrowing uh, could discourage private investments as well, um, which, which again, would make it more expensive for goods and services. You know, it's kind of this whole spiraling effect, John, where, you know, higher debt um, would, would, would start competing and start causing higher prices all the way down the line. And uh, just a greater percentage of the federal spending over the national debt would, would occur as a result. That's really it. Yeah, and the, the like we talked about a second ago, you know, a lot of people are starting to think about this as a national security issue. I mean, if you can't if you can't have basic services protecting your people, um, then the, and everything's going to the debt, uh, you know, payback. Then that's that's obviously some serious issues. Um, you know, if you look at the recent federal stimulus program, um, taking on that debt, some people believe can be worthwhile, um, but, you know, it's a short-term type fix. I mean, I think as you look at this, Steve, um, you know, I think taxes are going to increase, yep. and I think they're going to means test um, services Social Security for people. Will be eventually be means yep. tested, I, I feel confident. And I think they're just they're going to have to reduce the spending, kind of what, what you were saying, Gordon, it's a spending issue that we see on this, and and um, take it from two two pieces out. But I think the writing's on the wall. I think they're going to have to raise taxes and reduce services. And eventually, it, it, they'll raise taxes on everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, right now, I mean, the impetus has been raising taxes on the wealthy. And you can do that to a point. But uh, eventually, when you start needing more and more money to, to service this debt, um, they have to go to where the real money is. And that's the middle class. Well, and if, if they continue to, to raise the taxes on the... The, you know, the wealthy, we may see um, kind of an exodus like they did in France. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I right. was reading an article just, just leave a little the while country. back. They were just picking up and leaving like crazy by yeah. the droves. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, you can only tax you, – you tax people to a certain point, and they're just going to pick up and leave. It's like the state of New York with state taxes. I mean, well, they drive in, people out. In Greece, the, the middle – you know, last time I read about this, the uh, – the middle class, the the highest tax bracket topped out at fifty five thousand dollars. So, mm. if you had fifty five thousand dollars, you were considered wealthy in, yeah. in Greece. Yeah. So, you know that that's coming to America if we let this continue. <laughs> so, we don't mean to be a downer here. So, uh, when we come back from the break, we'll talk about something a little more, a little more upbeat, hopefully. Um, but that does lead us up to our breaks. If you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call seven zero six seven three nine zero seven two five. You're listening to Money MD. With John and Steve, we'll be right back at these lessons. Welcome back to Money MD with the Money Doctor, 
Dollars are in the house. I'm Steve Marvel, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider, and Gordon Leppard, an advisor in our office. And we are um, going to start off our last segment here with the prescription of the week. Yeah, see, this prescription has to do with deductibles for your car and your home insurance. And, um, you know, we talk about emergency funds. I think the emergency fund is probably the most important financial Tool. Um, tool that you can have. It can it leverages and gives you protection in so many different areas. And if you do have a good emergency fund, you can actually increase your deductible on car and home That's um, right. to lower the price associated with that. And so if you do have an accident or an, an incident, you can use your emergency fund to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, because you don't want to be claiming your home on, you don't want to make a bunch of small claims on your homeowner's insurance anyway, right? Because it goes up if mm-hmm. you make a small claim. So if you have something small happen at your house and it costs $1,000, $2,000, you don't want to have to go to your insurance company and make a claim for that. You know, I suggest a $5,000 deductible on your homeowner's insurance, maybe two, maybe one or 2000 for your car. Yeah, um, You need to have a pretty healthy... You know, emergency fund, of course, to cover that, three to six months of expenses, right? Yeah, that's right. Is the rule of thumb for an emergency fund. And uh, if you have that, then you can have that higher deductible and you can save money on insurance. Yeah, so that's right. Go out there and save money. That's what we're all about that's here. That's right. All right. And that leads up to our last topic here of the day, and that is time to tap your 529 plan for college. So what do you do now? Um yeah, this is an article out of Morningstar, and uh, John, I know this all too well because I've been tapping it now for about five years. Yes, you <laughs> and, have. You know, I've been tapping it hard. So, uh, yeah, this is this is. Uh, hopefully, you have a five twenty nine plan. That's the good news. If you're at this point, you mm-hmm. have a five twenty. You've saved some money for college. That's right. And there's another account out there, Steve, that some people use. It's called an ESA Education Savings Account. Dave, Dave Ramsey's big on the ESA. Yeah. Um, in South Carolina, particularly, the five twenty nine has a, a really nice tax benefit. You can uh, reduce your income, your state income, by any money that you put into a 529. So yeah, I think that's where you put your college money. That's where I've put my um, kids' education. So uh, I have two kids. One of them is in college. So I've been tapping it recently as well. So It's a big uh, savings, putting money in there. It's a 7%, you know, South Carolina. If you live yeah. in South Carolina, it's 7%. Georgia's 6%. Um, income tax that you get to write off immediately and save that money. That's right. That's right. So 529 can be a great place. And, you know, watching your child graduate high school, enter college, it can be a source of pride for for many parents. Um, But sooner or later, you're bound to face the cold facts that those hefty tuition bills, and they are hefty, and uh, some of the other college-related expenses will soon need to be paid. So, you know, if you've done some planning and you're fortunate enough to have a 529, uh, here's some thoughts associated with with how to do that. And, you know, aside from tax-free growth, um, and we talked about the uh, state income tax deduction for 529s, um, you know, it can you can get tax-free uh, distributions to pay for qualified expenses. And those qualified expenses include, like, tuition and fees and so forth. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different things that you can pay for it. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it includes tuition, includes fees, includes books, supplies, equipment required for attendance. Um, additional expenses for special needs students can also qualify. Room and board are also qualified, uh, provided the student is enrolled at least half time into the school. And even if they're not living on campus, John, you can mm-hmm. you can uh, you know take the amount out of the plan that you would have paid if they stayed on campus for a full meal plan and for housing. 
Uh, so you can take an equal amount tax-free. It's a qualified expense out of the 529 plan. Right. It's a pretty good deal. And so key is, is there's some administration work here. <laughs> You've got to coordinate payments and withdrawals. So when it's time to start paying those college bills, you'll need to contact your 529 plan administrator and, and ask for a distribution. Um, you know, and that, that can be paid directly to the account holder. Uh, it can be paid to the uh, the beneficiary as well, which is a student, um, or directly to the school. I do that with, um, with Danielle's. It, the tuition goes directly to it. And at the end of each calendar year in which the distribution is made, the plan's going to issue you a Form 1099-Q for federal income tax reporting pur- pur- purposes. So you got to make sure you keep track of yep. the 1099Q. Um, you know, for tax purposes, the 529 assets, this is a key one, should be distributed during the same calendar year in which they're used. But the two events don't have to have to happen at the same time. So basically, um, if you project for 2014 that you're going to spend $10,000 on on expenses, you can pull that out in January, um, as long yeah. as it's in the same calendar year, or you can wait to the end of the year and pull it out for everything that's occurred during that year. You just can't go over year over year. And I will say I've messed this up before, um, where I took money. Well, when I fired my tax return, I did not list it as a qualified expense. <clears throat> um, somehow there's some box you got to check that it was a qualified expense. I missed that on my tax return, and as a result, I did get a nasty gram from the IRS here a few months later, right, saying, oh, you know, these weren't qualified expenses. You owe all this tax on the earnings plus a 10% penalty. You should have told them that you lost the emails. <laughs> That's only the IRS that can do that. Disappeared. Yeah, right. We just lost them. Yeah, we just just, just, lowest just, learners. just lost all our emails. Exactly, <laughs> just like her. No, I mean, what I, I mean, just very quickly, kind of tick me off because you know you spend all this time keeping all this and you miss one little box on your tax return all of a sudden you get this nasty gram from the irs but you know i very quickly pulled all my receipts and i had a list of all my expenses um, on things that i didn't have receipts for i just photocopied that shot it back off to them so i disagree these were all qualified expenses out-of-pocket expenses for college and they you know, immediately wrote me back and said, no problem, yeah, basically. Yeah. So it's pretty easy to fix it. But you do need to be careful when you file your tax return when you do this to, to make sure you count it correctly as right. a qualified distribution. That's right. And when you do pull money out, I ran into this with, with Danielle. It takes a little bit of time from the 529 plan to the college. Um, South Carolina, which is where she attends, had, had updated their financial systems and so I didn't have the amount that was due to the school until like four days prior to it was due to the school. Ouch. So there was a glitch in their system, and so it came in after. I got a frantic call from Danielle saying, Dad, my classes have been canceled. Oh, she was, my goodness. And she didn't sound exactly like that. It was a little bit higher pitched. I'll bet. She was really upset. So it took me a, a week to, to convince them, and I finally got someone to admit that they had implemented something. And so anyway, you got to be careful and make sure you do some planning on the 529 piece of it. Yeah, they do. It's definitely some accounting. Yeah, and also be careful that you don't withdraw more than is needed from the plan in a given year. Or you can end up owing taxes on the excess amount. So if the amount withdrawal withdrawn during the year exceeds the amount of qualified expenses on the student's behalf, then the difference um, that consistent earnings, you will be subject for taxes and a 10% penalty on that. So, you know, if you withdraw $20,000 and you think it's qualified, but then the student only incurs 18000 in qualified expenses, you're going to pay taxes on that extra $2,000 plus an additional 10% penalty. Um, so if you take a larger than necessary withdrawal, you don't want to do that because, um, you know, however, if you receive a scholarship or a grant, any excess distribution, 
still be subject to taxes, but you the penalty will be waived. Mm-hmm. So you can take money out to offset a, a, a uh, scholarship. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's there's a lot of rules here. Um, you know, from a tax standpoint, there's also something that says if you take a larger than necessary withdrawal, you can't put it back in there. Um, you know, some IRA accounts allow yeah. you to do that, but can't, this you can't. No, no fixing this. <clears throat> no. So Be the careful. IRS. You know, if you're if you're ever audited, I mean, the key here is to document any qualified expenses um, when you use funds out of a 529. That way, if you're ever asked by the IRS to provide proof that the money was used for intended, um, you know, purposes, you'll have that available. Kind of what you did, which I did, yeah. yeah. And that's it's not that hard. I mean, we don't need to scare people away from the 529 plan here. The 529 plan is a great benefit, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It's a tax deduction on the front end at the state level, and then it's tax-free on federal and state on the distribution level. Yeah. So it's better than a Roth IRA because mm-hmm. you also get a, tax, a state tax deduction for it. That's right. So it's really the best investment vehicle for college on the planet in, yeah. in terms of taxes. Yeah, it is good. ESA is good as well if you don't if you live in another state listening to right. us out there. But um, you know, keeping track of your child's college uh, may not sound like your idea of a good time, but you know, it, it is important. Um, you know, if you're audited and the IRS asks, you're going to have to provide some documentation on that. So just make sure you, you follow some of the rules. If you have any questions, you can certainly reach out to us, and we'll uh, we'll help you. Yeah, but keep funding that 529 yes. plan. That's a it's a great tool, and you got to plan for college. You don't want to be sacked with a bunch of student loans when they get out. All right, well, that brings up to a close of this week's edition for Money MD with John and Steve. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, John and Steve at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.